Well, if you'll take out your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And once you've found it, you can stand with me. I don't plan on preaching a whole sermon on this section. We're just going to take a little peek inside of this torture chamber of the rabbis. And just look at verse 1, Isaiah 53 and verse 1. However, just to connect what I'm, this, this section with what Austin said in the call to worship, you could look at verse 12. Where it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And you can continue to, to read over and over in the Scriptures. The, the picture is painted that the Lord Jesus is going to conquer and that we are the, the, the treasures, the prize. Now, if you're not a Christian, it, it does Christ a joy and a pleasure to come and take advantage of the salvation that He's procured. Um, it, 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 he, he delights to save sinners. That's what He came to do. So Isaiah 53, verse 1. I'll read it and I'll just give a brief comment and we'll pray. The Word of God says, Who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The reason I thought this verse would be helpful is because the two questions that Isaiah is asking, I think sum up the problem and a solution to the problem that Isaiah saw in his own day. And that is a problem that I, I think I'm going to try to address that I see in our day. It's a, a, a problem that spans history. If we take the first question, we can turn it into a statement. It's a rhetorical question. Isaiah is actually um, alluding to what he sees as a reality. He asks, who has believed what he has heard from us? What he's getting at is a fruitful, salvific hearing of the Word of God is very rare. And we know that from Isaiah's call to the ministry. The Lord told him that was how it was going to be, and it's the same in our own day. A fruitful, salvific hearing of the Word of God is rare. Then the second question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now let's flip it into a statement. Isaiah is basically asserting that the power of God is required if anybody is going to hear and believe the Word, the, the preached message, hear the, the message concerning the suffering servant of Yahweh. When you see a reference to the arm of the Lord, very often that's a reference to His power, His strong and mighty arm. So we could then deduce this doctrine, which I think will serve as an umbrella over everything else I'm going to say. If anyone is to hear and believe the gospel unto any spiritual edification, it will require the power of God. It's not enough that a man just comes and talks to other men. We have to have the power of God and therefore we must seek and ask for the power of God. So let's pray and let's do that very thing. Father, we thank you for your word and we, I think we could all testify to the reality that Isaiah is addressing here. We know as we've tried to share the gospel with people, we've even sat here and listened to the word ourselves and we know that it's very rare, that it's fruitful or unto any spiritual edification. And so we confess and acknowledge that we need your power. If there's to be any spiritual benefit from any of our exercises today, it must be because you have chosen to bless this time. And so we ask that you would do that, Father. Do that thing which you love to do. Bless your people and feed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We saw last Lord's Day the first line of argumentation that I'm using to try to press upon you the reality or the responsibility that the hearers of the preached Word have to pray for those who are preaching the Word and for the act of preaching itself. 
I, I gave that the title, The Preeminence of Preaching. The idea is, is if we can understand just how important the preaching of the Word is, then surely that would, that would begin to motivate us to pray that it would be useful. We saw that the need for preaching and preachers finds its root in the very nature of God and in the sinfulness of men. If we go all the way back to the beginning, God shared an immediate, in, the, in the, the actual meaning of the word, without mediation, a direct and personal communion with Adam and Eve. He walked with them, He talked with them, He revealed Himself to them immediately, without mediation. Then sin has entered the picture, Adam and Eve sin, and with them all mankind. And so now, even though God has not changed, man has changed. And God and men can no longer carry out this immediate fellowship as we once could. Sin has entered the picture. Man is estranged. Man is alienated from God. We see that laid out vividly in that God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and, and put in place the cherub with the, with the flaming sword. You can't come in here anymore. The, the way into the presence of God is, is no longer available immediately. But God, and this is the story of the Scriptures, God has not changed. God, in mercy and in tenderness and in compassion and love and goodness, takes the initiative to actually come after those men who rebelled against Him. He pursues Men, and that's epitomized in God sending His own Son into the world. The very Word of God in the flesh comes into the world to reveal God to men. That's Christ, the fullest revelation of God in human flesh. And so we watch what Christ does in His, in his ministry. And he, he lives a perfect life according to all of the divine precepts of God, without blemish, in every area, absolutely perfect. Never a sinful thought, never a sinful deed, never a sinful inclination. He never looked at his childhood friends and, and saw them in sin and thought, you know, I, I kind of wish I could join them, but I just can't. Never. Never a sinful inclination in his life. And he, he does that, not because he had to accomplish anything, but he does that for sinners. He, he carried out that life in the place of sinners who could not do that. He was acting as our substitute. And then he goes to the cross and he, he dies on the cross. The sins of his people are laid upon him. And then the Father treats him as if he were the sinner. Even though he wasn't the sinner. All of, all of the people around him could verify that there was nothing in him worthy of death... And yet he's hung on a cross and the Father pours out the curse, and the wrath of God, the, His own wrath upon His Son. Not because He had sinned. We just saw that He hadn't sinned. Not because He had sinned, but because He was being treated as if He were the sinner in the place of sinners. And then He raises His Son from the dead three days later to prove to all the world that He's satisfied. That that, that which... Um, alienated and estranged men from God, we call that sin, everything required to remove that out of the picture so that men could come back into fellowship with God, it's all been taken away and God is completely satisfied in what His Son has done. That was the resurrection and Christ ascends into the heavens where He reigns even now. He lives making intercession. Now all of that we might call redemption accomplished. Everything required to bring men back into full, immediate fellowship with God has been required in its essence. It's, it's completed. There's nothing else to be done in its essence. That's what Christ meant when He said, it is finished. It's completed. But then if we look at the earthly ministry of Christ, we saw that He was preeminently a preacher. We could say He was the preeminent preacher. And in his ministry, as the preeminent preacher, he placed a very uh, high priority on preaching and trained preachers and sent preachers because the preaching of the gospel message is a part of what we would call redemption applied. It's all been accomplished. 
Now, as He intercedes at the right hand of the Father, His work is to secure the, the constant work of the Holy Spirit in applying the work of redemption to sinners. That's what the Spirit's doing now, applying the work. And one of the means that the Spirit uses to apply the work is preaching. The Spirit uses the preached Word to apply the work of redemption. And that's why the Apostle Paul would call the preaching of the Word by the church's official sent ministers. The Apostle Paul calls that the ministry of reconciliation. That's what it is. We're just preaching this Word that when the Spirit blesses, reconciles men back to God, the ministry of reconciliation. That's what a preacher, a minister of the church, a minister of the Word, that's what he is. He is a tool used by the Spirit to apply that work which Christ has already accomplished. Now all of that shows us, number one, preaching is not something new. And secondly, preaching ain't going anywhere. Until Christ returns, there will always be a preacher because it's rooted not in the schemes of men. It's not rooted in the Reformation. It's not rooted in, in um, psychology. It's rooted in the nature of God as He reveals Himself to alienated and estranged men who were dead in trespasses and sins. And we saw that preaching is perfectly suited by divine wisdom to meet men where they are. It always does it well. Preaching always accomplishes its task. Every time the gospel is preached, there are always decisions for Christ. You could count everybody in the room today if you wanted to and get on Facebook after church and say, we praise the Lord for however many decisions for Christ. And people would love it and they would, they would like it and they would want to know all of the information. You'd say, well, the gospel was preached. Everybody made a decision. It's always either a savor of life unto life or death unto death, but everybody's making a decision. Everybody is either repenting and clinging to Christ or they're saying, I, just not right now, maybe later. That's not for me. But preaching always does its job. It's perfectly suited. Now these twin realities of the nature of God and the sinfulness of man which make preaching so perfectly suited to the purpose of revealing God to men are the very same realities that demand that we pray for those who preach and that we pray for the, the act of preaching. So we think about it like this. Last week, if we want to summarize the whole thing, God is holy. God is majestic in holiness. God is righteous. God is almighty. He's absolute. He's sovereign. No scheme of man can thwart any plan of His. He always does exactly what He wants to do, when He wants to do it, how He wants to do it, and nothing can slow Him down. And men are corrupt. Men are sinful. Men are rebellious. Men are powerless. Men flee from the presence of God. Therefore, we need men to come and bring God's Word to us. And since we need that means of grace, then we ought to pray for its effectiveness. That's last week, okay? Today, God is holy and majestic in holiness. He's righteous. He's almighty. He's absolute and sovereign. He does whatever He wants, how He wants, when He wants. Nobody can thwart any plans of His. He's all-powerful. Men are corrupt, sinful, rebellious, powerless, impotent. Therefore, God sends men. Not angels. Men to us, fellow men. Send a man to other men. Since we desperately need God's grace given through the means of preaching, which comes through a human agent who is absolutely powerless to give you any grace... Therefore, we have to pray that God would use it. You could, you could imagine that if your spouse was laid in a hospital bed and the doctor said, if we don't get this person on life support in two minutes, they're dead. And here's the life support machine. And all of the wires are hooked up, but we've lost the power cord. The nurse just misplaced the cord. And the only thing you can find that even resembles a power cord is a piece of baling twine pulled off of hay. 
It's not a conductor of electricity. It won't do the job. There's no way to get the power from the source to the machine using this means. It, it is completely and utterly irrational. And so what do you do? You beg God for a supernatural work. That's the picture. The weakness of both the hearer and the preacher should increase all of our felt responsibility to pray for those who preach the Word and the act of preaching. The preaching of the Word is perfectly suited to accomplish the task. And it's perfectly suited to put us on our faces begging and pleading that God would use this thing that the world calls foolishness. It pushes us to pray prayers like this. God, we need you. Preaching is not an end in itself. We need you. Not just decisions, not just morality, not just emotions. God, we need you. In your mercy, you've sent us a messenger. Now, oh God, use this means that you've devised. So my goal for today is just to prove that truth and press that by capitalizing on the weaknesses of the hearers and the preachers. So that the rest of the time we're just going to talk about how pitiful we all are as we gather each Lord's Day. And hopefully it will become crystal clear as we think about this and examine ourselves that the weakness of human agency demands that we pray for power. So before we look at... Uh, several passages of Scripture, just a brief um, recap of what we know of a biblical anthropology, the study of man, as summarized in our Confession, chapter 6. Paragraph 2 says that all men, because of the fall of Adam, are dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Then we get to paragraph 5 and it says that the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. In other words, even if you're a Christian, you are perhaps not wholly defiled, but you are still defiled in all of the faculties and parts of soul and body. Soul and body, that's just your human nature. Your soul is the immaterial part of you. Your, your body is the material part. It's all corrupt. All the parts of soul and body are corrupt by sin. The effects of sin touch all men. Now I'm going to take all men for our purposes and break it up into two groups. Hearers and preachers. So then, according to our confession, all hearers and all preachers, because of sin, are corrupt in soul and body. Soul and body. So that's how we're going to break up the sermon. Hearers, soul and body. Preachers, soul and body. We're going to start with the hearers because every one of us at some time or another are hearers of the preached word. Not everyone will ever be a preacher, but we'll all be hearers. We are hearers. Those who sit under the, preach, the preaching of the word of God are subject to the same corruptions as every son and daughter of Adam. You could go across the street and find somebody who's not in church this morning, doesn't care anything about church. We got the same corruptions they have. Even, even those who are regenerate, re, we retain some of the, the corruptions. And that corruption acts very often like sand poured very slowly into an engine where oil ought to be poured. And if you've ever even considered what it means to put oil in your vehicle and why you need it, the, the thought of sand in there, it just, it, it just makes your skin crawl. Because all that's going to do is, is destroy and corrode and work against everything the oil is supposed to do. And that's what sin does. God has given us these means of grace that when, when blessed with the oil of the Spirit, are, are, they make, make everything work smoothly, but our corrupt nature is like sand. Wherever the Spirit is, it's like a little bit of sand sprinkled in there. So to, to put it very simply, sin makes prayer difficult. Sin makes singing songs in a worship service difficult. Sin makes hanging out and loving the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ difficult. Sin makes the private study of the Word of God difficult. That's how, it's just how it is. 
and sin and its effects on the soul and on the body make hearing the preaching of the Word difficult. That's what I want to show you. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And this will be the first main text that we look at. Matthew chapter 13. And here we'll see the effects of sin as they relate specifically to the soul. That is the immaterial part of man. The effects of sin as they relate to the soul of a man as he listens to preaching. Matthew chapter 13, I'll begin reading in verse 19 here. Our Lord is now explaining to His disciples the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now we know that a right receiving of the Word of God should produce fruit. That's the whole point of the parable. And I didn't read of the last soil. But out of the four soils, only one is, is fruitful. One out of four. That means three out of four are unfruitful. Seventy-five percent of the soils upon which the Word comes are unfruitful. Now, again, we go back to Isaiah. Who has believed what he's heard from us? Imagine the odds of sitting in a worship service and hearing the preached Word and it being fruitful. Now I want to point out from this passage just the various issues of the soul, the immaterial part of a man, and how they compete with the preaching of the Word. First, there's what we might call the mind. This is what you use to mentally comprehend the preached Word. This is... The, your mind is what you use to take my English words and hear them in English. And, and they, they convey meaning to you even though you don't even know you're doing it. Jesus said, Whenever, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So notice there, the Word is not understood. They hear it, but they don't understand it. The mind does not grasp the truths. It doesn't understand. And the picture here is that your mind doesn't grasp the truth. It doesn't lay hold of it. And so the devil says, I'll take that, and he snatches it before you can get it. Your mind didn't grasp it, and so he takes it, and now it's gone. You'll never get it. Now, let's just think about some of the reasons why you might not understand the preaching of the Word. Perhaps it's spoken too quickly. You just didn't catch it. And therefore you don't understand what was said. You, you miss a crucial point. Or it's spoken in words that you don't understand. The, the, the preacher used a word that was too big. I don't know what that word means, and therefore I cannot make sense of that particular truth. You don't understand it. Perhaps the phraseology is confusing. If the preacher slowed down and explained what he meant, you might understand it, but he didn't do that. He just threw it out there, and it was just a, a phrase that you've, you've never heard it put that way, and, and so you don't grasp it. Maybe your mind drifts for any number of reasons, for six seconds, and you miss a very crucial statement inside of a sentence in a sermon that, that brings the whole thing together. Your mind drifts, and you miss it, and therefore you don't understand. Or the net of your mind gets snagged on a strange pronunciation of a word. And so you begin to think about that. You know, tomato, tomato. And you begin to think, who says tomato? Nobody says tomato. 
It's a lie when somebody says, you say tomato, I say tomato, nobody says tomato. Well, there goes eight seconds. I've missed the sermon. I've lost it because my mind drifted. Or perhaps moving into the, the realm of the moral or the morality of understanding, perhaps you hear the text called out, you know this doctrine, you've already determined what you believe about this doctrine, and so you say, well, I'll, I'll just tune out on this one. Or you've already come to your own convictions about that text, and so whatever the sermon is, well, you don't need to hear that. You've already studied it, and you know what MacArthur says and what Piper says, and so, well, I don't need to hear what you have to say, and so you just don't listen, and so you don't understand. Again, are there not countless reasons why we might not understand a sermon? They're not all moral. Some of them are, but a lot of them are just extremely practical. We miss the understanding, and the devil gets it. And somebody might object and say, well, you're just talking about intellectual assent, which is true. If your intellect doesn't Take hold of the meaning, your heart can't understand it. It starts with intellectual assent and then enters into the heart. A man can preach in the power of the Holy Spirit and a demonstration of that power and the Spirit might fall, but if he's preaching in Spanish and there's one person in the room who doesn't understand Spanish, he's going to wonder what all the fuss is about. He can't get it. He has to speak in words that people understand. It, it begins with the understanding. And if it's lost in the understanding, there's no chance for implantation. And so we have to realize when we come to preaching, there is a battle for our minds to think. And there's a weakness in our minds. There's a, a tendency for our minds to wonder. Again, sometimes it's, it, it's a moral issue. Sometimes it's very practical. There's nothing that, that we can do about it in a moment except work even harder to understand. So there's the mind, then there's what we might call the heart, the command center of the soul. Beginning at verse 20, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now notice this hearer, Here's the word with joy. So the preached, the preached word goes out. And this hearer hears it, understands it, and is actually stirred with joy. Yes, I like that. I feel joy at that word that he's saying. It's, it's joyful immediately. But there's no root in himself. And so the imperishable seed of the Word is never implanted to take deep roots in the heart. And tribulation and persecution arise. That would be external difficulties come upon that person and the Word is pressed out. Imagine a football player. He's running with the ball and he's hit and the ball is popped out of his arms. That's what happens. The pressure begins to be applied and the, the hearer of the Word says, just take it, just take it. And so they receive the word with joy. They endure for a while, he says. But that while, he doesn't tell us how long that is. It could just be seconds in a sermon. I hear it. I like that. But wait. Or it might be minutes. It, it, the joy might even last to the end of the sermon. And then, oh, but wait. And the, the thoughts of the pressure begin to come into the mind. Or it could be years that a person has heard the word and they're joyful about it and everything is comfortable and everything is easy and as soon as the comfort begins to be taken away, they let go of the word. They like it as long as it's comfortable because our hearts are naturally self-centered and self-preserving. We want to preserve self and that is not just erased when we're converted. We have to war with that and put that to death and deny ourselves, but it's always there. So then we can think about all of, all of the various pressures that might present themselves as we begin to adhere to the Word of God. You hear the Word and you immediately receive it with joy. But then you realize, oh, wait a second. If I really take hold of that truth, I'm going to have to give up a very long-held doctrinal position. I mean, I've, I've been in this camp for a long time. And now I'm going to have to go to my, my fellow campers and tell them, guys, I'm not in your camp anymore. Just take it. I'll just let go of that truth. 
Or perhaps you take the word, you hear it with joy, and then you begin to realize, well, if I begin to live out that principle, I'm going to have to ask somebody to forgive me. Well, I'm, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm not quite as convicted and convinced as I was when the word was going forth. You might have to admit that you're wrong. You hear the word and you receive it with joy, and then you realize, oh, wait a second, if I adopt that principle... I'm going to have to change my entire daily and weekly routine. I can't live the way I'm living and live, the, live, the way, live according to that principle. Everything's going to have to change. I'm, all of a sudden, I'm not quite so convinced of his exegesis anymore. If I adopt that principle, I'm going to have to make some pricey alterations to my wardrobe. He's just being a little extreme. You receive the word with gladness, with joy, immediately. And then you realize, well, if I adopt that principle, I'm going to have to have some really difficult conversations with family members. And the word is pressed out. You hear the word, you receive it with joy, and then you realize, wait a second, if I begin to live according to that principle, that means I'm going to have to find another job that might not pay as much money. All of a sudden, I'm not quite as convinced as I was before. If I adopt that principle, I might have to live below societal standards. I might have to move down to, dare I say it, lower middle class. I might have to forego some leisure time if I live according to that principle. All of a sudden, that joy of receiving the Word, it's not quite so joyful because you realize there are some pressures that are going to be applied by the society and the people around you and even your own self, and most people just give it up. In the worship service, they are convinced and convicted and the Lord is working on them and then they realize, I'm going to have to actually live by this. Never mind. Next week will be another sermon. We'll forget all about it. And that can come in the very act of hearing. You hear it and immediately you realize, oh, I've already thought about that. I, don't, I, I know that's going to require me to change. Move on to the next point, Pastor, please. Or it might come later on. As you begin to implement and you realize that living by faith according to the Word of God is not easy. There's the heart. Then when there's what we might call the will, the, the desires and the tendencies of the soul in verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the Word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the Word and it proves unfruitful. So here again, the word is heard, it's understood, but it's choked out by love for riches and for cares of the world. In other words, in the heart there are some other things that are just more important. And the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the, the thoughts of those things just fill up the heart. They swell out in the heart to where any consideration of the word that was preached doesn't have any room. Or if we think about the way weeds, weeds will grow and choke out plants. They, they grow faster, they grow taller, and they get all of the sunlight, and they get all of the nutrients from the ground, and so anything around them dies. It, they choke out all of the nutrients, and that's what happens here. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, they consume and absorb all of your mental powers, all of your heart and affections, all of the desires. It's all around the world, and so when it comes to the Word you got nothing left to give. You're exhausted already. You've given yourself completely. So the Word is pressed out, choked out. In the very act of preaching, cares of the world are swirling in the mind. And so the Word is going forth and you're thinking about self-promotion. You're thinking about wealth. You're thinking about your job. You're thinking about my schedule this week. Well, what days... Am I working? What days do I have off? What, what are the tasks that I have pending this week that I have to get finished? What's it going to cost to fix the car? What's the weather going to be like? Will I have a roof over my head? What's the meal plan going to be? All, everything. Some of them perfectly acceptable things to consider, and yet when the Word is being preached, not acceptable things to consider. And there we have another endless list of things that vie for prominence and attention in our heart. And all our mental strength and all of the nutrients that we have are exhausted on everything else under the sun and there's nothing left for the preaching of the Word. Now all of us have to agree, unless I'm, I've lost it, all of us have to agree these are real tendencies. This is real. 
real distractions to our truly hearing the Word of God. Not just listening to sounds. Everybody in this building can hear the sounds. I'm talking about hearing, actively engaging with the truths that are being conveyed. James says that we are to receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. That means set aside all self-promotion, all self-preservation, all self-defensiveness, and simply receive it. Lord, whatever You would have for me, whatever it requires of me, I will do it. That's a command from James. If you're not hearing that way, you're disobedient to the Word of God. So there's always the flesh that wars against the Spirit, and we need grace to subdue our fleshly appetites. We need the Spirit to help us bind up the loose ends of our mind, tie them off, stuff them away, because I'm going to hear the Word preached. And I can deal with that stuff tomorrow. We need the Spirit to help us think clearly. We need grace. Matthew 13, 11, Jesus told His disciples, "...to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom." Of heaven, but to them it has not been given. God has to give the spiritual ears. Only God can do this. So we need grace. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now that is not a blanket statement that says simply... Everyone devoid of the Spirit never understands. Everyone who has the Spirit always understands. It means everyone devoid of the Spirit never understands, and those who have the Spirit can understand. But we can come to the preaching of the Word of God and listen in carnal ways, in fleshly ways, unprepared. We've not sought the Lord to help. We're not ready to hear, and we might as well be lost people because we're not hearing the Spirit. So we need grace for our souls. Now, let's come out of the heavens, come back down to the dirt, and let's think about our bodies. The effects of sin have radically corrupted our bodies, the material part of us, flesh and bones. We're not yet glorified. Our physical bodies have needs and they have wants. There is no setting, no physical setting on this planet is perfectly conducive to hearing the Word of God. None. That, that'll be glory. Here, there will always be things that have to be overcome, and some settings are actually less conducive to hearing the Word of God. For example, Acts chapter 20, verses 7 to 9 says, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That, that was just physical. It was late. Eutychus was young. Paul had been preaching. They're in an upper room. It's hot. They've got lamps, not bulbs, flames all over the room. Eutychus probably says, I've got to get close to a window. I've got to get some fresh air. He dozes off and falls out the window and is taken up dead. Ezra stood on a wooden platform made for preaching. Christ got into a boat and pushed off from the shore so that everyone could see Him and hear Him. Both of those men were preaching in such a way that they could be within the sight and the hearing of all of the people. The reality when we put all this stuff together is that we are not disembodied spirits. We are not glorified. We have physical bodies and all of the parts and all of the faculties of those bodies have been corrupted by sin. Sin makes hearing the word difficult. So we could think about our eyes unless our eyes are closed, they are always taking in information. Always. Whether you're conscious of it or not, you're taking in colors, shapes, sounds, all of it. And every piece of information that your eyes take in have the potential to steer your mind away from the preaching of the Word of God. It might be the amount of light. There's too much light. It might be that there's not enough light. It might be that we're using fluorescent lights, which are incredibly agitating to me and other people, but maybe that doesn't bother you at all. Our eyes see best what we look directly at and focus on. 
I can see with my peripherals, but I don't drive with my peripherals. I look where I'm driving. So just think about all the ways in which your eyes can cause you a distraction. Somebody moves. That could cause a distraction. Somebody doesn't move. And you can't see because they're in front of you. A child constantly fidgeting back and forth, back and forth. The person in front of you has something in their hair or something on their clothes and you just notice it and you can't stop looking at it. You want to you get it off, but you don't want to bother them or you can't reach them. Or, as it's happened before, a spider crawls across the floor of the sanctuary and you're thinking, I wonder if anybody's going to get that spider. I wonder where that guy's going to end up. All of these things can draw our minds away from the preaching of the Word. But let's just say that we've all got our eyes perfectly focused on the preacher, like we ought to, and we notice his left hand's always in his pocket. Why is his left hand in his, always in his pocket? Has he got something wrong with his left hand? We notice his posture, his bodily movements, and they seem unnatural. And so we watch him and we begin to feel uncomfortable because we feel sorry for him being uncomfortable. Some of you have been in this situation where you've got a, a guys who wear ties and their neck hangs out over their collar. Now, I, I can't stand to have anything around my neck. That's why I don't wear a tie. And so I see this and I think, does that not feel awful? Do you, how are you breathing? But that's just something that our eyes see. Our eyes see and it draws our mind away from what is important, which is the preaching of the Word. And this will be the one time where we get to have a sermon, where we get to talk about all the things that our minds are distracted with. After this week, it's over. Our eyes always present us with new material for distraction. So then we could move to, to uh, the ear gate, what Bunyan would call ear gate. Just like our eyes, our ears are always taking in information, whether you know it or not. Unless they're completely closed off, something's always going in your ears. So you might can hear the hum of the lights. You might notice when the HVAC unit clicks on and clicks off and all of a sudden it just deadens with quietness. And then later it's louder. You hear feet shuffling. A baby cries. A child speaks. An adult sneezes or clears their throat or pops their knuckles. And you hear it. And these are all things that you're taking into your mind and they have the potential to draw away your attention and the attention of others, I would add. An ambulance goes down the road with the sirens on, and we think, wonder what's happening? Where are they going? All of these potential disturbances, not all of them are immoral, except when they cause you to stop paying attention to the preaching of the Word of God. Then it becomes wrong. Because our job is to overcome that and to be careful how we hear. Then, again, let's say that we're all perfectly focused as we ought to be. So we're honed in on the preacher and our ears are taking in what the preacher is saying. You know, our ears hear best what we're looking directly at. So we're looking and we're hearing, we're listening, and we notice some of his words got a little bit of a whistle to him when he pronounces them. And it's just, what is that? wonder what words, what words it is, what was the sound? I'm trying to catch that, that, that there it was right there. It, there's something about his whatever that causes a whistle and our minds wonder. Or his voice is on the cusp of breaking. And rather than clearing his throat, he just powers on through it. And everybody in the congregation is saying, man, just clear your throat. Just clear it. Just clear it. Nobody's going to get up and leave. Just clear it out. Take a drink of water. Or, some of our Friday night men have talked about this. His voice is elevated too soon. He comes out of the gate just on fire and all of a sudden everybody's wondering whoa what's happening why are we so intense already I've missed something what's happening here because he did not allow the people to walk slowly with him and build them up to the the breaking point and so people begin to wonder why is he so frazzled what is happening here or his his voice becomes so soft that it's drowned out by the cooing of a child in our lap. Not because the child is louder than the preacher, but because the child is closer than the preacher. The child is seven inches from my ear, and the preacher's way up there, and he comes down real quietly, and all of a sudden that, those sounds even out, and all we can focus on is the child. We don't have the capability of flipping a switch that, that turns off all extra noises. We don't have a, a, a hear only the preaching switch. We don't have that. So we're always taking in something, and all of these things 
have the potential to draw our attention away from the preaching of the Word. We have our skin. Maybe it's too hot. Maybe it's too cold. You're sleepy or you can't pay attention. Maybe the wooden pew feels as though it might rub through your ischium. That's your sitting bone as you sit there. And you, or you have a, 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 a cramp in your leg and you just can't, you can't get comfortable. And your body is, is working against you to hear the preaching of the Word. We have bellies and we're hungry and they're growling and we wonder, why is he still preaching? I can smell the food. I know it's ready. It's warm. It came cooked. We have sicknesses where we come and we're sniffling. Our eyes are watering. Our, our throats are scratchy. Our bellies hurt. Our heads hurt. Whatever it might be. Our physical bodies, because of the fall of man into sin, they suffer and they ache and they are not meant to find delight in this life. It's not going to happen. Now add to that our bad sleeping habits, our bad eating habits, the failure to prepare or plan for sitting through the whole service, ourselves or with our children. I think some of us don't even plan to sit through the service. We don't even try. It's not happening. Or we fail to train our children to sit for any length of time without staring at a screen. Or, positively, we regularly give ourselves and our children to screens which are decreasing our ability to sit and focus and listen to the preached Word of God. Everybody thinks I'm, I'm joking when I say it's making your brain mushy, but there's a reason why the Puritans could sit through a three-hour sermon and we can't sit through a 40-minute sermon. There's a reason. We're working against ourselves. And so we, we put all of this together. We couple that with the ailments of the soul. And what do we have? We have a psychosomatic being. Psycho, mind, soma, body. A mind-body being. Corrupted by sin in the fall, whose duty it is to bring themselves under the preaching of the Word of God for the good of their eternal soul and for their children. It's your job. You're commanded. God doesn't say, well, I know it's rough. Um, just forget about the preaching thing. You're commanded to sit under the preaching of the Word. And none of these things are irrelevant or ignored. They're part and parcel to our human Condition. Nobody is so spiritual that they can say, well, none of that stuff's ever bothered me. I just love the preaching, and I could just sit for hours and listen. Nobody's that spiritual. If you're, that, if you're thinking that way, it's because your mind is wandering so easily you don't even know it. You, your mind wanders all the time, every day, and so when you come to church, it's like asking a fish if he's wet, and he says, what do you mean? Because he's always wet. That's all he knows. So what do you do? Take every possible precaution to prepare yourself mentally, spiritually, physically for the worship service. If this is the highlight of our week, if this is everything we're working up towards, then why would we not be preparing ourselves all the time for it? Take every possible precaution to prepare your family mentally, spiritually, physically for the worship service. And then you pray through the promise of Psalm 103. Verses 13 to 18. David says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. His righteousness is to the children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. What do you do? You keep covenant. You keep His commandments. You live your life in the fear of God. And then you pray and then you trust that God remembers your frame. He knows your dust. His Son has felt every infirmity that you feel. He knows it. And you pray, Lord, sustain me. And He'll do it. You pray. Secondly, let's consider the preachers. And this heading is a lot shorter. The preachers. Selected out of the mass of fallen humanity... There are 
men called to deliver the word. And contrary to popular belief, the preachers are not the cream of the crop. Paul tells us that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the Lord. It is God's normative pattern to choose what the world would not choose so that when He does something powerful, it puts the world to shame and nobody has the opportunity to say, look what that guy did. So preachers are not the cream of the crop. Very often those who deliver God's message suffer an intensified need with regard to body and soul. Now I considered very deeply whether or not to even go into any of this because it can, there, there is the possibility that everything I'm about to say is going to be heard as whining, as pleading for sympathy, as for begging for, for you know, cards or letters or something. So as we walk through these things, I want you to think only of the other men who stand behind this pulpit and not me. I am speaking for them. I want to tell you what they experience. And that way you can't say, Paul's begging for sympathy. First, consider the soul of the preacher. That immaterial part of the man. Paul said, apart from the other things, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Now nobody that's going to stand behind this pulpit anytime soon can describe their plight as the anxiety of all the churches, but they will be able to say the daily pressure of the anxiety of the church, delivering the word to the church and caring about how the people sitting in these pews are going to receive the word. And they can say with Paul, who's weak and I'm not weak? I'm just like you. I'm, I'm, we're, we're flesh and blood just like you. And so when it comes to the mind, the preacher has every distraction that the hearer has multiplied by the seconds and minutes and hours that he spent preparing to preach the sermon. While the hearer comes only to hear, the preacher has spent all of this time preparing. And he struggles not only in the preparation, but also in the preaching mentally with all of the same things. While the hearer struggles to understand, the preacher has wrestled in preparation with how to convey the truth in words most suitable to his hearers knowing that there are going to be some who just don't understand. Not catering to those at the very, very bottom, and not catering to those at the very, very top, but prayerfully considering everything. And then juggling all of that in the act of preaching with all of the same mental distractions that we all have. While the hearer might wage the battle to understand what's being preached, the preacher wages the battle of pride in his knowledge as he tries to deliver 30 or 40% of what he's engulfed, taken in throughout the week. The preacher knows every word that he says carries eternal weight. The preacher knows that the congregation knows when he's reading or when he's speaking from his heart. But they don't know when he's reading something that he wrote from his heart. And he wonders how that's going to be received. The preacher knows and sees when that one person whom he had prayed for, especially regard, with regard to that particular sermon, he, he knows and sees when they're distracted. At the very moment when he had prayed, God used this to prick that heart, and he says it, and they're not looking, they're not in the room, they're not paying attention. Spurgeon said he once counted eight different things going through his mind all at once while preaching. In it. In addition to all of the, the heart hazards of the hearers, the preacher has all of those same things. All, I'm, I'm, the preachers are, are flesh. We're, we're sons of Adam, born from that race just like you. We have that corruption in hearts and will just like every man. In addition to that, the preacher has usually spent 10 to 20 hours waiting, not just in mental labors, but in spiritual labors and spiritual applications in the truths that he's about to deliver, praying and hoping that if he could just get you wet with a little bit of what he's been sitting in all week, it would be of some edification. His heart has been pricked over and over until sore 
with the truth, possibly calloused by now from the truth. His spiritual zeal has been stretched to the extreme and let loose to dangle. Monday, stretched and let loose to dangle. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and he's just praying that when he gets in the pulpit, there'll be a little bit more to stretch so that the word doesn't come across cold and dead and lifeless. The preacher knows who might take offense at what he's going to say. The preacher knows who might shrug off what he's going to say. The preacher knows who it is that he's hoping is not unnecessarily burdened with what he's about to say. He knows this word is going to cut some, but oh Lord, don't let that weak saint be cut. There are weak saints. And sometimes a hard word, we think, oh, this is going to, it's going to hurt them. Lord, don't let them hurt. Don't let them be hurt if they ought not to be hurt. The preacher knows that as he preaches, he has the potential to stiff arm and, and push away from him people who he desperately needs to be his very best friends. The preacher expects, and, and this is in our culture, in our age and society, he expects that there are those who are going to critique every word and phrase and see how it will compare to the 38 other sermons that they're going to hear this week by men who have never brought their name into the presence of God, wouldn't know them if they saw them. The preacher knows which phrases have been calculated and prayed over to pierce the conscience of particular individuals. And then as he preaches, he is tempted. Do I say it? Do I, am I really going to say it? Or am I going to cower in, in the fear of men and not say what I ought to say? Or if they're not paying attention or if they're not in the room, am I going to say it anyway and potentially cut somebody that don't need to be cut? And in all of this, the preacher knows he's utterly incapable of producing any spiritual good whatsoever. Apart from God, he's impotent. Then there's the body of the preacher, his, his chief tool, his, his primary instrument in delivering the word. And my body, the body of the preacher, is not unlike the body of the hearers. We have the same bodies of the dust. We struggle with the same physical corruptions. They said of Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his speeches of no account. They began to nitpick. Well, look at how he stands. His bodily presence is weak. He's short. He's scrawny. He's, he's, his speeches of no account. He stutters and he messes up words or whatever it might have been. And the preacher knows that hearers nitpick physical things. When it comes to the eyes, the preacher sees everything the hearer sees all at once. And... The preacher watches everybody else looking at what everybody's seeing all at once while he's preaching. He's looking at people, he's communicating, and he's watching faces to see if anything is being received at all. Because that's how human beings communicate, by the way. We use our eyebrows and our heads, and, and the Bible gives us the amen of corporate worship that lets people, let the preacher know if it's being received. And so the preacher's watching for all that, and he sees looks of confusion. And he wonders, did I misspeak? Did it, am I being unclear? He sees looks of apathy. And he wonders, well, am I belaboring a point that doesn't really need to be belabored? Do they care at all? about this particular point. He sees looks of distraction and he's wondering while he's preaching, why can't the one man standing up and speaking in front of everybody, why is that not sufficient to get everybody's attention while he's preaching? He looks and he sees empty seats and he wonders why the churches are not full. The preacher hears all of the sounds that everybody else hears while he's trying to hear himself and make sure what he's saying is clear. Preachers get hot and cold just like everybody else. The preacher's tired. Preachers get hungry, believe it or not. Very often the preacher has gotten much less sleep than the hearer. And he also has to try to retain some appearance of vitality so as not to discourage the hearers with his beaten down physical presence. You know, you've seen these guys who just, they just look like, they want everybody to know just how awful they feel. The preacher is consciously aware of all of these weaknesses and flaws more than any hearer. The preacher is a more conspicuous target for the devil's schemes. Taking out a, 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 an elder and a pastor of a church is like taking out a general. You could take out a whole church if you can just get that leader, get that man. 
The preacher is trafficked in spiritual matters day in and day out, and so he's more sensitive to all of his weaknesses than anybody else because they are openly displayed to him every day of the week. Other men have the option to pursue a career that capitalizes on their strengths. The preacher doesn't get that option. He's got a career that capitalizes on his weaknesses, or he is commanded to glory in his weakness, as Paul said. Paul said, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Treasure, the priceless, everlasting gospel of the precious Jesus in jars of clay. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the message. The Spirit can use the message, but it's in a jar of clay. Common, everyday use, someday disposable Clay, not priceless china, not irreplaceable china. The preacher knows that for all of his labor someday he will be taken out and another one will be put right in his spot. And he prays regularly, Oh Lord, let that be somebody better than me at the job. And yet God has chosen this means. It's strange. This is why Paul said, Who is sufficient for these things? That was the Apostle Paul. Who is sufficient for these things? We can't make it effectual. We can't convict anybody of sin. I can't take it out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Preachers are not capable of doing the one thing most needful. As Al Martin says, we don't come to church with the Holy Spirit in our back pocket. We just whip Him out whenever we're ready. Both hearer and preacher alike suffer from corruption in soul and body and thus are in need of power from God to make preaching effectual. Yes, God has given this means for our good. In mercy, He's given us this means. And the very means that He's given demands that we pray for His blessing. God is not going to ever give us a means of grace that would allow us or, or produce in us independence. All of the means that He's going to give us are going to tether us to Him. And if we think we've got a means of grace that lets us get away from Him a little ways, we've got it wrong. He wants us to constantly be at His feet. As Paul says to finish out the verse, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why, Paul? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. As Isaiah would say, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It requires the power of God. So what can you do? We've seen all hearers are weak. All preachers are weak. We, we are made from the dust. So then what do we do? Very quickly, there's something you can do negatively. That is, stop giving yourselves to things that work against the preaching of the Word. If you give yourself six days a week to things that work against preaching, you're not going to be able to sit through preaching. If you give your children to things six days a week that work against preaching and you bring them to church, they're not going to be able to listen to preaching. If you're giving your mind or your heart to things that leave you devoid of any ability to use them properly when the Word is preached, stop it. Stop staying up late on Saturday nights. Our confession says that to honor the Sabbath, the Lord's Day Sabbath, means you begin to prepare ahead of time. You prepare your affairs on Saturday and get ready. Negatively, that is, stop doing all those things that are working against preaching. But positively, then, prepare yourself for the preaching of the Word. Get ready. This week I put out the Sermon Preparation Guide, which the point is to use that in family worship throughout the week just to get the, the topic in your mind, to get your children thinking about the topic, considering it. Then the Sermon Guide usually goes live Saturday at lunchtime where you've got a, almost a full, complete outline of the sermon. Look through that. Start early on Sunday morning so that you're not rushed to get here. The service starts at 11. That doesn't mean, oh, it's 11. Well, let's start getting up and go into the sanctuary and then complain because we're hungry. It's lunchtime. I'm, I'm so hungry. Plan ahead. I've not seen the calendars yet for 2020. But I bet that very first column, 
It's going to say Sunday on top of it. Sunday comes every week. There's no reason why we should be surprised. Oh, it's Sunday in church and oh, what, what? it happens every week. Prepare. Think ahead. Daily family worship. I'm going to push that until I'm dead. Daily family worship is how you prepare for Sunday. If you're not engaged in daily family worship, number one, you're in sin. Number two, your family's not going to be prepared for worship on the Lord's Day. Prepare yourself and then pray for those who preach the Word and for the preaching of it. You got prayer points for the last two weeks. Next week we're going to spend the whole time just talking about how you can pray. But for today, it's simple. Pray for those who hear. Pray for yourself, your soul and your body. Pray for those who preach, their soul and their body. And don't pray for good sermons. Pray for the power of God. Lord, to whom will you reveal your arm? Let it be us. Reveal your arm to us as we prepare for the preaching of the Word of God. It's rooted in the nature of God, in the nature of men. It is the preeminent means of getting the Word, the life-giving Word, into the minds and the hearts of hearers. And yet we've got men talking to other men. We're, we're connecting this thing with a piece of bale and twine. If God doesn't touch it and make it conductive, it's not going to work. So let's pray. Well, if we go back to where we began with Isaiah, the message that he was struggling to get across and, and was seeing very little fruit from was the supreme message, especially there in Isaiah 53, the message of the suffering servant. It's the reason that we gather. We see in verses 3 through 5 of that same chapter, he was despised... And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Isaiah, Isaiah prophesying says when the Lord comes, people are going to look at Him and they're going to say, yeah, God's getting that guy. God's getting him. He's cursed of God. He's hanging on a tree. And Isaiah says, nah, it's not for His sins. It's for ours. Christ for us was Isaiah's message. It was the message of the cross, of the substitutionary death of Christ. And preaching brings that reality to the ears of the people. Paul would say, don't say in your heart who can go up to heaven and bring Christ down or who can go down into the abyss and bring Christ up, but the word is near. In the preaching of the gospel, Christ is brought near and he meets with his church. And in the Lord's Supper... The reality of Christ's death is made a reality to our hands and our taste buds and our eyes and our noses, the other physical senses. And so as we come to the Lord's table, use it as just that, a means to bring you back to Christ and His death in our place. Meditate upon that and then we'll come to the table.